Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Five, four... Three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is Yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, it's not often that I will butcher someone's name hosting Red and Blue on CBS News streaming and the very next week have that person as a guest on the takeout. But that's the sequence of events this week. If you were watching Red and Blue last week, I completely butchered, and I apologize for this profusely, the name of our guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, it's great to have you on the show. I apologize for butchering your name last week. Part of my penance is to have you here for the next hour. Hey, I appreciate the best efforts is what I would say, but uh, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Why are you on the show? You're on the show because you're, A, running for president, a Republican nomination for president in 2024. You've also written a book, which I'm more than halfway through, Woke, Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. We'll get into the book in a minute, I promise. Vivek, why are you qualified at age 37 to be the next president of the United States? So I'm not running on my biography. Yes, I have accomplished a number of things. I've built successful businesses and so on. But this isn't about saying that just because I know how to build and run successful businesses, then I think that that qualifies me to run the country. No, I'm running on a vision for our country that isn't somebody else's vision. It is a vision I have developed over the last several years, taking on what I view as the key cultural challenges in America but delivering not just criticisms of those cultural challenges from wokeism to climatism to gender ideology, things that me and many other conservatives have complained about, but to actually address that problem by filling a national void of identity. I think we're in the middle of a national identity crisis in America. You ask most people my age, really any age, what does it mean to be an American today? You get a blank stare in response. I have a vision on what the answer to that question should be. I think it involves a revival of the very ideas that set this nation into motion 250 years ago. I believe deep in my bones, those ideals still exist. I have lived the full arc of the American dream to prove it. And I'm now running for president to revive those ideas again. And I think it's possible. So Forbes magazine listed you uh, under the category successful entrepreneurs under the age of 40 and projected your net worth at $600 million. Is that correct? It's about right in the right ballpark. It varies. I don't check it on a day-to-day basis, but uh, but that's about right. To me, the least interesting, I've got a lot of questions about this in the last week about self-financing the campaign and that being a competitive advantage. Yes, I've lived a full arc of the American dream. And yes, I care about this country enough to invest behind this vision, including in this campaign. That's the least interesting part about it. Actually, to me, this is actually going to be a bottom-up grassroots-driven campaign first on the quality and clarity of the message. And I'm making this commitment now. I expect we will lead this field. I believe we already are 
on the specificity of the policy proposals and the actual solutions that I'll pledge to deliver. And so, you know, for those who have read my books over the last for some people who haven't heard of me, okay, this guy's coming out of left field and nowhere. You know, it is a little bit unconventional for a 37-year-old political outsider to pursue the highest office in the land. And I get that. But I think if you've been following my journey over the last several years, I mean, take the people who have read my books from Woke Inc. to Nation of Victims to reading the, the dozens of essays I've published in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere just in the last couple of years, to my travels of this country, to the businesses I've started, including most recently Strive, which is practicing what I've preached in taking on the ESG movement and capital markets. I think this will be much less of a leap for the people who have actually followed my journey than for the people who are hearing about me for the first time. But my goal is to, to let the rest of the country get to know me as well. I promise you we will get to ESG. Are you going to self-finance your campaign? I am going to. I'm already self-financing it. Yes, right. I will get this campaign off the ground in a meaningful. Do you have way. a limit that you will not spend above? Uh, no, I don't have any hard limits that I've drawn. No, I don't. I mean, I think that I believe in reviving this country. That is my top objective. I'm obsessed with filling this void of American identity. I'm running for president because I think the most effective way to do that is to successfully run for president and deliver this thing we're missing in our country called national unity. I think that that's mm-hmm. something that we've been missing for a long time, and I'm motivated to deliver it. And you know what? If there's something I'm going to invest my time, energy, and resources in, and I say this as a family together, we're behind this, it's actually going to be the success of, of reuniting this country. Debates for Republican candidates seeking the nomination will begin later this year. Do you fully expect to be on the debate stage? I do. And I think that's going to be a first and important milestone. I will say that I want to get even there. Though you know, even up. though you don't know and I don't know what the RNC requirements are going to be. I think the RNC needs to be transparent about it. So if I have one piece of advice to them, make those criteria clear now. They've said that, you know, they need someone to actually pledge to support the eventual nominee. I've been clear that I'm not I'm not a party man. I could care less for the Republican Party apparatus. But you know what? For the sake of the country, I absolutely will say that I will support the ultimate nominee. But that being said, that's a criteria for getting on the debate stage. They've already made that clear. Make the rest of the criteria clear, too, so that there's no game playing. But I'm confident that uh, that you know we will not only be on that stage, but driving and leading the way in in driving the agenda forward for not just this party, but for the pro-American movement in general. If you were to the, obtain the nomination, would you release your tax returns? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I believe in total transparency, tax, health, et cetera. You need a president who is unafraid of showing, putting their putting their heart on the table open and up to run the country. Well, you know what? The country has an obligation to know who they're putting in that position. So I think those are basic table stakes. And even one of the things that's going to be a feature of this campaign is transparency into every aspect of it. Uh, you and I were talking a little bit off, off air about it. You know what? One of the things we're going to do is we're actually just going to tape a lot of the policy briefings, the training that I get to be president. I'm not going to pretend like I know everything that I don't. No candidate does. It's just the only difference is the other ones pretend they do. I think that we need to be really honest and transparent through this whole process. That's actually going to be one of the hallmarks of this campaign. You told me you're going to have a podcast where indeed these policy briefings are part and parcel of the content. That's right. And we're going to start releasing those in the month of March. So you know what? There's a lot I have to learn. There's a lot every one of us has to learn. Nobody's born qualified or even today qualified to be president of the United States. That learning process is probably the most important part. And I want everyone to see how I learn and to learn with me for this to be a journey that we take together as Americans rather than me you know, getting a briefing five minutes before I show up on camera, memorize the bullet points and then recite them to you like I've known them all along. I think audiences and voters anyway have a pretty good radar for who's doing that. That's something you're not going to get out of me in this. And actually, one of the campaign pledges that I lightly made on Twitter, but I intend to abide by it, is I'm not going to read speeches written by others. I'm I'm not even going to use teleprompters. You know what? I don't believe in reading off written speeches. What you're going to get from me is what's coming from the heart, my bone deep convictions. And I'm going to encourage people, as I did in Iowa and New Hampshire last week, to say that you have a good sense for who's actually delivering you their personal convictions versus what they were taught to say by somebody else. I believe the voters in this country have a pretty good antenna, sixth sense for that. And I think the person we put in the White House next needs to be a person who's telling you what they actually believe, their own original perspectives, rather than just channeling what a class of political consultants told them to say. And that's what you're so going to get with me. We are recording this on March 1st. Earlier this week, you got a question from Hugh Hewitt about the nuclear triad. You, to the Conclusion of many outside observers whiffed on that. Anything you want to say about that now? 
I did not know what the nuclear triad was. That's a word that refers to land, air, and sea defenses. But you know what? I'm a fast study. And that's what I've said all along. I'm not going to pretend to know something that I don't know. To the contrary, every person who approaches the office of president of the United States needs to approach it with humility. But you take a look at the issues I have taken on from the ESG movement and capital markets to woke culture in America to, you know what? I started a biotech company that I built as CEO and worked on five drugs that are FDA approved products today. I built that company from scratch. I wasn't born with biotechnology either. I came to that too. And so, you know what? I, I think that I'm humble enough as a leader, and you can look at my historical record and scholastic achievements or business achievements for my track record, but I'm humble enough to know that none of those things qualifies me to be president. But I do learn with fast, and I do learn with an open mind and heart. And yes, do I know every bit of lingo that you're supposed to know in being part of the defense establishment or in Washington, D.C.? Of course I don't. But those are just terms. Those are words that I am humbly ready and at the willing to learn. And you're actually going to see me even through the podcasts that we release, get my policy briefings and learn everything I need to do to to do this job as well as I possibly can. And that's the best I could promise. Does the podcast have a name? Uh, It doesn't yet. Actually, we're working on that by the middle of March. We're thinking of keeping it pretty simple and just calling it Vivek. But uh, but it's it's probably a good place to start. So yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy is our guest. He is workshopping the title for his presidential podcast to be. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two coming up on the other side of this break. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Vivek Ramaswamy is our guest. He is running for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. He's also the author of, among other books, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Let's get to some terminology. What is an elite in this country, Vivek? So I don't use that word very often because it means different things to different people. But I think that what the question we got to be asking is who has really been included or excluded from our culture? And I think that that's a dividing line where the managerial class in America runs the show today. Okay. That's when, if you're going to press me on who, what do I mean by elites in a critical mm-hmm. sense, that's what I mean. The bureaucratic managerial class, be that in government, be that at universities, the, the proliferating cancer of associate deans of God knows what, be it the managerial class in corporate America. The managerial class runs the show today, and they're the ones crushing the will of everyday citizens, citizens who elect elected officials, but who don't actually run the government. Instead, it's this managerial bureaucratic class instead. Or invest through their 401k allocations and the like. Exactly. So, so okay. they, they the reason the I ask that, yeah, the reason ahead. I ask that, Vivek, is there are those who look at me and say, I'm an elitist because I'm in the media and I have a prominent position in the media. I look at myself and say, I'm the last thing that I would ever consider to be an elitist. I was born in Southern California. There's not a journalist in my family. I went to public school in Southern California. I went to a land-grant university in the middle of America. I worked myself from Amarillo, Texas, to Las Vegas, Nevada, to Houston, Texas. I've been in Washington. I'm part of what I regard as a meritocracy. But plenty of people would say I'm an out-of-touch elitist. And so I'm very curious about this definition of what constitutes elitism 
in your mind? Elitism is the absence of humility. That's what it means. And you know what? I'm not a big fan of putting people into categories because of some box they check or don't. I reject virtue signaling no matter where it comes from, because the problem with virtue signaling is at some point, signaling your virtue becomes more important than being virtuous itself. And I usually criticize the left on that. But I'm also, whether you're on the right or anywhere else, just because somebody is in a category of a box that you think that you don't like, this box checking has got to stop. I think whether or not you're an elitist depends on whether or not you're looking down on your fellow citizens or whether you see them as co-equals. And you know what? It doesn't even come down to money. You could be a an artist in Brooklyn who might have an elite attitude towards somebody who's a small business owner in the Midwest. It doesn't even have to do with necessarily how much money you make. It's a new form of cultural elitism, culturism in America that I think we need to sort out. And so to me, that's the dividing line. Do you view your fellow citizens as co-equals or not? If you do, we're on the same team. If not, then I think you're, you're vulnerable to critique as an elitist and should be called out as such. I promise we would get to ESG. For my audience, define it for them, please. Yes, yeah, so ESG refers to the use of environmental, social, and so-called governance factors to invest your money. What most people don't know is that your own money, your 401k accounts, your retirement accounts, brokerage accounts, are being used to vote for racial equity audits at companies like the Apple or Home Depot. Pension funds of the state you live in, for example. Absolutely. Pension funds of the state you live in being used to vote for racial equity audits or emissions caps without your knowledge. And that's not to advance your financial interests. That's to advance a one-sided environmental or social agenda that you never voted for. And so in a certain sense, Wall Street is using your money to create a country that you didn't vote for, but they're not using their money to do it. They're using your money to do it. And so I believe in not only highlighting this, I do think knowledge is an important source of liberation, but I also believe in solving that problem through market solutions which is why a little over a year ago, I founded a company called Strive that is directly competing with the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard who promote these ESG dogmas. But by offering a different approach, telling everyday Americans and telling companies that corporate America should be focused on making products and services, yes, for profit, without apologizing for it, without advancing any other social or political agendas. And I think it tells you something about me is that I both believe in seeing a problem with clear eyes. I've written two books about this. The mm. second one's coming out later this year. But I also believe in being a man of action and actually solving those problems rather than just sitting around complaining about it. So that's a bit about me. So Vivek, uh, this will sound like a compliment. It's not meant to be, but I read a fair number of books that are not really written to be read. They're written to be talked about on talk radio. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Books that have a catchy title, that don't have a lot of substance to them, but they can last for a 20-minute talk radio conversation, and propel sales. Woke Inc. is not that book. It's a deeply researched and well-argued dive into all of these issues, the structures of corporations, why they exist, their organic legal structure, why it works. I was actually surprised at the depth of the book, and I'm not trying to make nice with you. I'm just telling you and my audience, the book is deeper than it sounds. Yeah, I mean, the word woke has undergone a transformation over the last several years. But this, if I may say myself, and I could care less about selling books, I care about getting the message out there. But Woke Inc. and also I'd encourage you to read Nation of Victims, too. These are great ways of getting to know me, not just as a citizen, but as a presidential candidate and somebody who has a vision for the country. As I said earlier, you're going to see a lot of politicians who are grown you know, adept, who've grown adept at spouting off someone else's vision. In many cases, I'm actually grateful that the governors across this country, that many policymakers across this country have become foot soldiers advancing the vision that I laid out in Woke Inc. But I think for the presidential race, it's important to have somebody sitting in that office in 2020, January 2025, who deeply understands these issues first personally with a level of depth that goes beyond just scratching the surface. And, you know, I had an 11th grade English teacher at St. Xavier High School in Cincinnati who told me that if you can't write it down, you probably don't know what you actually think. And I'm happy to say that after having written three books in the last 18 months, I can tell you that she was definitely right about that. This has been a journey for me too, an introspective journey, one that you know I think is, I, I don't hide from the arguments of the other side. One of the things I've tried to do in those books is to actually make the best arguments possible for even the people who disagree with me to really inhabit their perspective, to mm -hmm. try it on like a set of clothes, because then you really deeply understand what you're criticizing rather than what I bluntly even see a lot of fellow conservatives do, which is to just you know spout the talking points of criticism 
in a certain sense, that's not courageous. What's really courageous is to understand and inhabit the thing you're criticizing. And then that puts you in a position to, with credibility, take it down. That's what I've done in the books. So let me ask you, if you were to tap the garden variety American Republican on his or her shoulder and say, who's the most anti-woke politician in America? They would not say Vivek Ramaswamy. They would say Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Is he? Well, I mean, he, he's anti-woke, and I think he's read Woke Inc. a couple of times, and I'm, I'm grateful to him for running with a lot of the ideas that I've advanced. I really mean it. It's the highest form of praise, and I think he's done a good job on many fronts in Florida. But I think it also reveals why the person who takes these issues on needs to deeply understand them first personally themselves. I don't rail against big tech censorship. That's what a lot of conservatives say. I call it what it is. I call it government tech censorship, because what's really happening is that the government is using these private companies to do through the back door what they couldn't get done through the front door under the Constitution. That's really what's going on. Take the ESG movement. Ron DeSantis, I think I'm happy that he's decided that he wants to talk about it of late. I think that deeply understanding what's going on would actually have him take a look at the votes that Florida itself has cast. It's not just about divesting a couple of funds from BlackRock that are supposedly divesting from oil and gas. It's about looking at how your own shares are voted. And you know, I, I don't mean to call out Florida or anything. It's true for many states. Many Republican states have had their own shares voted in ways that betray their own constituents' interests. And so I think for states and for governors, it's great to have executors. I think for the national revival that we're going to need, you need somebody who first personally understands these issues deeply and is committed to them in an original way not in a way that's just executing on somebody else's vision. So using some of your own language, is Ron DeSantis an example of a spouting anti-woke Republican? Look, I think he has been one of the best foot soldiers in this battle. I think that he has demonstrated his ability to pummel the other side when, you know, into the ground when their hypocrisies need to be called out. But I think the national revival that we need is going to demand more. I think we need a leader who is able to fill that vacuum. And wokeism is just the symptom. Go to the root cause. The root cause is this deeper void of national identity. And what we need is a visionary who can fill that void with the vision of what it means to be American today, reviving basic ideas like meritocracy, free speech, open debate is how we settle our political questions, democracy and democratic self-governance over aristocracy, reviving and speaking with a deep understanding of history, philosophy, and even modern American understanding of what those ideals are in a first personal way. That is what we're missing in the conservative movement is an actual visionary who fills this hunger for purpose and meaning that my generation has. And I'm running for president because I see that as missing in this conservative movement. We have plenty of people who can play a game of whack-a-mole with the woke poison one at a time. And I've done my fair share of that, admittedly, too, over the last few years. Mm -hmm. But we need to rise above that to actually deliver a substantive alternative and, dare I say, inspiring vision for the next generation of Americans. And that's what I intend to deliver of Vivek Ramaswamy, segment three of The Takeout and this ongoing conversation about his book, his candidacy, when we come back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Vivek Ramaswamy is our guest. Vivek, in your announcement for this campaign, you said something about COVIDism. What is that? Well, COVIDism is just one of the many secular religions we've embraced in America. I cite climatism, which I think is the real secular religion that America bows at the, at the altar of today. Wokeism, radical gender ideology. These are secular religions 
that the people who practice these religions fail to recognize as religions. And you know what? The most dangerous religions of all are the ones that you fail to recognize as an actual faith. It's in the veneer of science, both with COVIDism and climatism, we've created a religious conviction in a single-sided agenda that has actually nothing to do with the problem you're purporting to solve. COVIDism has very little to do with addressing COVID. It has to do with the exercise of technocratic power, just as climatism has actually, I believe, very little to do with the climate. As I sometimes say, the climate change agenda in this country has about as much to do with the climate as the Spanish Inquisition had to do with Christ, which is to say nothing at all. It's actually a play for greater punishment, power, and dominion. And if it did, I mean, I'll just take the climatism example because COVID's passed now, but it's the same parallels you'll see, is that if this was really about the climate, they would be complaining about shifting oil production to places like China, even as they shut down oil production here at home. Yet there's no concern about that, even though actually it's a much dirtier form of oil production abroad. They would be embracing nuclear energy, which is the best known form of carbon-free energy production known to mankind. And yet the ESG movement, which is really the apostle of the climatism religion, is hostile to nuclear energy. Why is that? It has nothing to do with the climate. It has to do with achieving equity, making the West and America in particular apologize for its success to allow the rest of the world to catch up. But they couldn't have gotten the agenda implemented unless they wrapped it in the veneer of scientism, which is this broader superset religion of both COVIDism and climatism, which is using the appearance of objectivity and science to really just advance a form of religious fanaticism that's about actually the wielding of power and control for the people who run that church. That's what this is about. COVID was real, correct? Of course it was. Of course it was. I mean, I have the, I have a family vaccine, members who have been hospitalized. And the vaccines were responsive, true or false? Well, the vaccines did attempt to respond to it. Now, I think that unfortunately, uh, what we're learning is that these were some of the fastest developed vaccines in human history. The government got ahead of itself and that there was there was a lot that we know today that we didn't know at the time. But treatments, I think, were an important part of this. Climate change is also real, by the way. I talk about the climatism piece of this. When I talk about climatism and covidism, I'm not denying the underlying reality of covid. I'm mm -hmm. not denying the under reality of the underlying reality that global surface temperatures are going up and in part due to human activity. But what I'm denying here and rejecting is the religious fanaticism to say that that needs to be the end all be all purpose of human action, when in fact, the end all be all purpose of human action should actually be human flourishing itself. And I think that's what the religious zealotry misses here. You spoke earlier about transparency. Are you comfortable discussing your vaccination status? Yes, I am. I'm not afraid to say it. I was vaccinated and I also got the second shot in the booster. And I'll challenge you know, every other presidential candidate on the Republican stage to be open about that too. But I think the facts have do you evolved. Think that, do you think that that status should be a dividing line? I don't think it should be a dividing line. Absolutely not. And again, I'm, I'm I'm against this virtue signaling apparatus. If I was to go through it again, I would rethink it and do it differently. But you know what? Based on the facts we saw at the time, we made the best decisions we could. And you know what? I think that we need to embrace this idea of pursuing truth. That's the thing that these secular religions miss is they, they abandon truth itself. Truth is what's under assault in America. I mean, the that's what the gender ideology movement itself is all about, the rejection of actual truth. And I think that one of, the, one of the assaults on free speech in America is also part of an assault on truth. Free speech and open debate is a precondition for the pursuit of truth in America. And you want to bring that back to COVID. Take the school closures, okay? I think most of us agree. I certainly do. But I think most Americans quietly will agree that that was a disastrous idea, that that's going to be a generation of inequity that we created by closing public schools for a year or more in this country. Well, guess what? We would have gotten to that answer, to truth, sooner if we hadn't censored the dialogue and debate about it. And if we don't learn from our history, we're just going to keep making those mistakes. Take the news of this last week of COVID. We now know almost definitively that it originated in a lab in China. If you said that two years ago, you would have been censored on social media, on YouTube. And I just think that what we suffer in America today is this broader assault on truth and the pursuit of truth itself. And one of the premises of my candidacy is if we can start talking openly again as a country, then that culture of fear, we can let it pass and let courage be contagious instead. And part of that culture of free speech is that's the path to actually reviving truth itself in America. That's what I'm on a mission to do. Understood. What is a clickbait conservative? Oh, <laughs> I joked about that in one of the radio interviews. Look, I think that there's a lot of people, unfortunately, in the Twitterverse who make money, advance their own agendas by just 
spewing whatever is false and, and, and allows them to actually uh, get the most clicks because that's the business model they run. There was actually for, for all of a couple of days, a, uh, and I think a lot of people were threatened by me entering the race, even on the right. I think that was evident. Uh, this narrative that I was somehow a affiliated with the World Economic Forum, which is laughable, because and a long association with George Soros. Yeah, I mean, a said. lot of the, it, 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 completely false, complete lies. But it was interesting. It was an interesting educational experience to me. It was almost flattering to say in day one of entering the race, this many people already viewed me as a threat, both on the left and on the right. I, I took that as a compliment. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go on some radio programs where where they explicitly asked me about that. We could debunk those lies. I've never had a tie with George Soros in my life. I've never met the guy. I probably never will. There was somebody else who had a name by the last name of Soros, who was a relative of Soros when I was 25 years old, that was one of the funders of a scholarship that allowed me to pay for law school. I said, you know what? At the age of 25, I took it. You want to know why? I'm smart. But you know what? The same people, the discovery for me, didn't have a peep to say about the fact that Donald Trump took a $160 million loan from not a relative of George Soros, but George Soros himself. Now, I don't hold that against Donald Trump because that's just business. But the funny thing is it was revealing to me about the games that people play or think this thing about the World Economic Forum. There is no American. I, I would go so far as to say there's no American who has been a more vocal critic who has also done something about those criticisms in acting against the World Economic Forum's globalist agendas through the books I've written, through Strive, which I started. Actually, Strive just this last week sent a shareholder letter publicly to Salesforce. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, is on the uh, board of directors, I'm told, of the World Economic Forum. Nobody's taken action like I have. And yet the funny thing is a lot of people in the conservative movement who didn't even know what the World Economic Forum was were educated by me through the first book that I wrote. And so, you know, those lasted for all of a day and a half before I think people were able to see through it. But I think I think it's it's this broader question of truth. Get to the bottom of what is true. And I think that a lot and, of- And that, as you yeah. said, to use your words, a business model built on falsity. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the challenges of that's modern social media. That is a confusing part of our current world, Vivek. It is. And I think it reveals something about human nature. I think that we need to each look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, what is it about our human nature that causes us to fall for the tricks that they play? And I think part of that is this identity crisis this loss of faith and patriotism and hard work and family, these things used to ground our identity. And Mark Zuckerberg's fundamental insight, he was a year ahead of me at Harvard. I was at Harvard when he started Facebook there. His insight wasn't a technological one. It was an insight about human insecurities, that we can prey on those human insecurities to get people to click on something more quickly that gives him a window into our souls that's deeper than we have into our own. And that was the backbone of creating a multi-trillion dollar industry on the back of it. But the right answer has to be to fill that void, those psychological insecurities that social media algorithmically exploits, to fill that with a deeper sense of psychological security and meaning and purpose. And, and I think the revival of American national identity can play an important role in filling that void. I think faith and family so, also have their roles to play, of course. But I think as president of the United States, I'm at least going to be in a position to deliver on the national identity piece of this and to create a culture that allows faith and family to flourish again, too. I'm going to set you up to answer this question because we've got about 40 seconds before the break, and I don't want to ask this question and wedge your answer because it's a big question into 10 seconds. So I'm going to elongate the question so we have time for you to give a full answer on the other side of the break. And the question is this. You just said, and I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest you're correct, that social media preys upon insecurities and anxieties we have about ourselves and about our country. The question I have for you is, because I think if you're going to come up with a solution, you better understand the underlying reasons why. Why did this country, which is strong, powerful, full of self-identity and rugged individualism, leader in the world in many respects, find itself anxious and insecure? That's the question, your answer. On the other side of the break, I'm Major Garrett. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Okay, that was a long question, I know. I was padding ever so slightly. Vivek, Ramaswamy, what's the answer? What's your answer? So I think there's no silver bullet of an explanation. I've laid out some of this in in my books. It's a deep question. I think part of this is, look, we're in the middle of the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history. Not a lot of people talk about this, but it's true, from baby boomers to millennials and Gen Z. And I think there's something about that that creates a self-loathing in America. The idea that you're inheriting something that you didn't earn, the idea that you're not going to be able to step into the shoes of what was previously called and may factually have been the greatest generation. I think that creates these insecurities, right? Ludwig von Mises actually famously said it a a century ago. He's a famous Austrian economist that there's two ways to exceed your father if he was a great man. One is through actual superiority, through your achievements. That's harder to do. The other is through this feeling of moral superiority. And that's what's happened in America is we have this deep-seated generational insecurity, I think, in our country. I think that's been exploited by cynical forces, right? I think the merger of state power and corporate power in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis also played a role here. My generation of millennials entered the workforce literally in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis. That created jaded attitudes towards capitalism, jaded attitudes towards the narrative of the American dream, which... For many millennials, they were at least under the false belief that it was false. But then you have cynical forces, both in the private sector and in government, that work together to exploit that, to say that, okay, we're going to prey on that vacuum of identity by giving you a new identity instead, based on your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, that makes you a more effective consumer to buy things more quickly, to buy things more effectively, to be advertised to more effectively. And then social media exploits that with the superpower, with the kerosene, That's the fire. Social media throws a kerosene on that fire, turns it into a conflagration with the power of algorithmic exploitation of those insecurities too. put all that against the backdrop of a decline of faith in America, the decline of family as a source of value and a source of meaning in America. And that's when you get this formula for this national insecurity complex that we have that lends us, that makes us prone, vulnerable to these different forms of addiction, not just to actual fentanyl, though that's a problem in this country, but even the digital fentanyl of TikTok mm-hmm. and modern social media too. And and I think that's not a partisan point. I think we got to see that through nonpartisan lenses. It's a pathology in America today. And I think a leader of this country has to be up to the challenge of both understanding that with clear eyes, but actually delivering unifying solutions on the back of it too. Slavery is a heavyweight word and it's a heavy part of our national history. You have described what you just outlined as psychological slavery. That's a very freighted, weighted and heavy term. Are you at all uncomfortable about using that term, psychological slavery? I use it intentionally, okay, because I'm motivating people into action. So one of my heroes actually was Frederick Douglass. I don't know if you've ever read his autobiography. I have. And I have indeed. It's one of the, one of the interesting tales in there that stuck with me was knowledge is what set him free, right? So one of the families that he was lent to, by the way, you, you could do that. They would loan him to work for another family. The mother figure in that family read him books and the father figure walked home. When he saw that he was livid, he said, knowledge is not fit for a slave. And the funny thing is Frederick Douglass, when he was a little boy, <laughs> didn't actually even want to be forced to learn how to read. He's like most kids. But then that stuck with him and said, wait, if this guy doesn't want me to have this knowledge, then that means that better be something I learned. He self-taught himself, got the other white kids who were coming home from school to teach him how to read and knowledge was his ticket to liberation. I think in a lot of ways, we are suffering from modern psychological slavery in America today. Psychological slaves of social media, psychological slaves of our own insecurities as a people, psychological slaves of what the merger of state power and corporate power is teaching us to think about ourselves, psychological slaves of this new dogma that says you're nothing more than the genetics you inherit on the day you're born. So yes, I use that word intentionally. I don't have qualms about it. But I also say that the path forward isn't the use of physical force. Where I worry, we may be on a path to to a dark place as a country if we don't get this right. 
I think the path is instead knowledge and liberation and self-education, just like Frederick Douglass did too. And so I use that word intentionally to light a fire under the feet of a generation that, you know, is waiting for someone to come from on high and save them. Here's my message. Nobody's coming on from high to save us. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be because we save ourselves. And if I'm going to be a leader as president, I'm not going to be pretend to be some Messiah coming on from on high. But I do intend to lead with that message that if we're going to do this, we're going to do this together. And we're going to have to educate ourselves together to be able to do it, too. So to answer your question, do I have some hesitation about using that word? No, I don't. In fact, I think it's one of these. We live in a 1776 moment. I hope we don't live in an 1863 moment. And I, I'm running for president to make sure that we're not on some path to a national divorce, something you hear in the in the parlance today, but to make sure that we actually run on, you know, that we actually run this country with the vision of e pluribus unum from many one, the vision that actually set this nation into motion. And I'm running for president to revive that. I wasn't expecting you to make that specific reference, but since you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, a member of the House Republican Conference, now an ally of the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has now not once, not twice, but three times in the last two weeks, spoken openly advocating a national divorce. I bluntly disagree with her. I bluntly disagree with her. I think it is the wrong way to go. Now, do I understand the intuition behind it? I do. It's a sad state of affairs. And actually a big part of the cause of the problem is what I've been pointing out over the last several years, which is this trend of politicized capitalism. Alexis de Tocqueville made an observation in this country over a century and a half ago when he traveled this country You see a country well, sometimes when you travel as an outsider, that was true of Tocqueville. What he said is a diverse, divided democracy like America is not supposed to last more than a generation or two. It's supposed to crumble under the weight of its own divisions unless there's an apolitical space that binds us together across those differences, that we have to keep apolitical. That is the unspoken unspoken secret of American capitalism. It's not just the best known system known to mankind to lift people up from poverty. It is also our formula for national unity if we keep capitalism apolitical, where people can come together, whether they're black or white or Democrat or Republican, in common cause to create things together, to innovate together, to play baseball or football together. That's part of the role of American capitalism, too. And so when American capitalism itself got politicized, that was really the beginning of the end of the American experiment. I'm on a mission to fix that. Now, I think the right answer is not to go the direction that Marjorie Taylor Greene advocated for, which is to say we need a national divorce, red states from blue states. And the sad part about about it, Major, is that I've never seen her critics agree with her more on anything than her call for that national divorce. That's worrisome. That should give each of us concern. But for me, it was a wake up call and a reminder for why I'm doing what I'm doing in this run for president. We've celebrated our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot what unifies us across those differences, the ideals that set this nation into motion. And that's what I think the conservative movement needs to embrace as its agenda, to lead with that, not just satisfying itself as as many of my fellow conservatives do, who I applaud for their work in, in calling out the endless hypocrisies of the other side, as I've been doing for the last three years too, but to now rise to the occasion to actually rediscover that common thread that binds us together across our capital D diversity I say our diversity is not our strength. Our strength is what unifies us across our diversity. And I'm leading the way to help rediscover those values. The voice of Vivek Ramaswamy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. Look for Vivek on the campaign trail if you live in Iowa, New Hampshire, probably South Carolina. I suspect you will see him in the not-too-distant future. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week, folks. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am, of course, Major Garrett. Welcome to my office, third floor of the uh, CBS Bureau in Washington, D.C. This is a Zoom conversation. You've probably picked up on that by now, dear listeners and viewers. Vivek Ramaswamy is our special guest, running for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Author of Woke, Inc., among other books, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Vivek, um, you are an entrepreneur. You set goals. You set benchmarks. What is your benchmark for the next three months of your campaign? How will you measure whether you are succeeding or not? So the first milestone of this campaign is get a prominent spot on the debate stage, not just on the debate stage, but a prominent spot on the debate stage to actually focus on the what and the why. I think that this race in the first year ought not be about the who. I think the Republican Party obsesses way too much about the who. Is it Ronna McDaniel or somebody else, Kevin McCarthy or somebody else? Why is that? That's a symptom of an absent agenda in this party. And so I think the first thing we need to do, and I expect to lead the way in doing it, is to define what this party stands for, why we stand for the values that we do, both as Republicans and as Americans. And then 2024 is the year that the voters actually get to decide who's going to be the best standard bearer for those values. And you know, my my thesis here is that it ought to be somebody who led the way in defining the agenda. So that's what I'll be doing this year. Next year, I'll be asking for votes. But that's going to be milestone number one is a leading the way in this race. And I mean, really leading the way as we already have in specificity of policy proposals and solutions. And then second, to elevate that onto the debate stage to make sure that this race is about the what and the why rather than just about some biographical brawl, which is where I think it's otherwise heading before I entered this race. Speaking of the great who, why are you better than Donald Trump? So I think Donald Trump sets a high bar for the Republican nomination. But I intend to exceed that bar because I'm coming in to do what he did as an outsider in 2015 and 2016. Okay, you get to be an outsider the first time around. However, I think it's going to take a new outsider to now take that to the next level. And I also think that, you know, not just for the conservative base, but for the pro-American base, I'm unafraid to take on certain issues that even Donald Trump, I think, danced lightly around. I've pledged to end affirmative action in America. Not a lot of people know this. That can be done by executive order. You want to know why? Because the reason we have affirmative action so broadly in America is by an executive order that Lyndon Johnson signed. Every Republican president, including Trump, could have eliminated it. They did not for fear of political backlash. I don't have that fear. In fact, I talk openly about the fact that we need to restore a system in America where once again, you get ahead, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions. Merit in America. It's deeply important to me. Achievement was my ticket to get ahead in this country. So it's deeply personally important to me. And I won't apologize for it. Abandoning this climate religion that shackles the United States while leaving China untouched. Again, these are things that other Republican candidates dance around, but I'm unapologetic on actually delivering. I, I believe that the U.S. military's top function should be to protect, who would have ever thought, U.S. soil, including protecting the southern border, including the use of military, if necessary, to decimate the cartels that are principally responsible for the fentanyl crisis in this country. And so you know, I respect what Donald Trump did as an outsider. I think it does take an outsider to shake up an ossified federal government. I said, I'm going to shut down government agencies, something that no president has yet done. I believe Article two of the Constitution empowers a U.S. president to do it. I've already said I will shut down the U.S. Federal Department of Education to leave education to the states and local communities where it belongs. That's just the first of many government agencies I'd shut down. But I view this as building on the America first agenda. But you know what I also say is to put America first we have to first rediscover what America is, and that's where I'm leading the way. We have three questions we ask everyone on the show. I bet you can bat them down quickly. Okay. Most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie and your favorite kind of music by artist or genre? Ah, favorite kind. I'll go backwards. Favorite kind of music. I actually like Eminem quite a bit. Lose Yourself is my favorite song, and, and if I'm asked on karaoke on demand. Uh, that'll be my go-to you song. Macklemore in your book. So I was impressed by that as well. Yeah. We played Macklemore as like my walk-in song for my wife and I at our wedding too. So, you know, we've got, uh, two white rappers, I guess there aren't that many of them, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, Eminem was, uh, was kind of the all-time favorite, uh, lose yourself. I, you know, I do, I do a not bad rendition if I, if I have to admit that myself. So what was the, we'll what was look, the question we'll you asked right that before that? We'll look for that on pay-per-view somewhere. Yeah. Uh, favorite movie. 
Favorite movie? Oh, you know, a lot of good choices. I, you know, I'm in an American history X mood right now. I actually put out about a tweet earlier this year. I said, I would be into actually creating a modern remake of American History X. It was one of Edward Norton's great movies. Heavy, but, heavy, but heavy, movie. heavy. But we need that. We, we don't have movies with character development anymore. Mm. They're all these flat characters. It's driven by special effects and whatever. I, I'm sick of that. We need movies with serious character development. That movie just met its moment. I think we're hungry for it. A funny little story. I haven't shared this with anybody. I actually wrote up a small treatment and I sent it to a Hollywood studio before I was uh, running for president. I actually got some initial reception for what that movie could be. But, I've, you know, there's only so much you can take on. So I think I've decided to focus on the presidential campaign. I'll come back to that later. In, uh, Probably maybe... a shrewd move, at least for the short term. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite book, most influential book and why? Yeah. Um, well, I did mention the, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. That's high on the list. Uh, but I would probably say Friedrich von Hayek's mm-hmm. Constitution of Liberty. I think that's a deep philosophical text that's not just about the economy. It's actually about what it means to be a citizen. People miss that about Hayek. It's probably the most influential book on my thinking. That is the voice of Vivek Ramaswamy. It's been a pleasure, sir. We'll see you down the road. Safe travels. Thanks for sh- share- sharing some of your perspective and time with us. Appreciate that, Major. Thank you. We'll see you later, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.